first move. Great to have you with us this Thursday. Coming up over the next hour, post Prigozhin. The Kremlin remaining silent after the presumed death of Wagner paramilitary leader Evgeny Prigozhin in a plane crash outside Moscow. Questions abound over the future of Wagner and the possible implications for President Putin as a fierce critic departs the scene. Full coverage just ahead, plus Don's deadline after the Don-less debate. Former President Trump set to surrender to Georgia authorities just hours from now for his alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election results. All this after his no-show at the first Republican presidential face-off Wednesday. Call it the Milwaukee melee spirited debate over support for Ukraine, abortion rights and economic policy too. Newcomer Vivek Ramaswamy, a tech entrepreneur taking repeated hits for his lack of political experience and his position on climate change. Candidate Christie liking his policy responses to that of a chatbot. I've had enough already tonight of a guy who sounds like ChatGPT standing up here. And And speaking of artificial intelligence, call it NVIDIA Ignition shares of the AI chip giant soaring in pre-market trade after a phenomenal earnings report. Shares set to rise some 7% in trade today. Those numbers set to provide an early session boost to the Nasdaq overall, in fact, and their forecasts for greater demand for their products suggest we're in the earliest innings of the artificial intelligence boom. As you can see on the screen in front of you, Europe. In the meantime, mixed, softer bond yields helping the market move overall, though, though a weak European data set and a sizable downward revision in U.S. jobs gains last year, suggesting that central bankers perhaps can ease back on those rate hikes. We'll get the scoop from Jackson Hole over the next 48 hours to see what they think. And even an embattled injured share session getting a boost to the Hang Seng higher by more than 2%, its third straight session advance. And lots to get to, as always. But first, nearly 24 hours has passed since an aircraft believed to be carrying Wagner Group leader Evgeny Prigozhin and two of his top lieutenants fell from the skies north of Moscow. And so far, no word, as I mentioned, from the Kremlin. Russian officials say Prigozhin was on the plane and state media reports nine others were also on board. So far, only eight bodies have been found. Nick Payton Walsh is with us now from Zaporizhia in Ukraine. Nick, the truth is we may never know officially what happened here, but what we do know is a challenger to President Putin is presumed gone and also someone who wrought devastation in Ukraine and elsewhere around the world, presumed gone. Yeah, Julia, I mean, I think increasingly we know officially from the Russians what they would like the world to hear about this, their statements that Prigozhin, along with, frankly, some of the key a part of Wagner's sort of henchmen or inner coterie around Prigozhin were all on that plane and it appears have all lost their lives. But that is something it's very hard to get definitive independent confirmation of. You mentioned there how only eight of the ten bodies of those on board have been recovered from the two kilometre wide area in which wreckage has fallen and that wreckage of course frankly quite horrific as you would normally expect after a plane catastrophe of this magnitude. The plane seen in the skies a wing falling off after 
after an explosion and then hurtling towards the ground. Startling, I think many observers would say, that all of Wagner's key elite felt safe enough in Russia after their failed armed rebellion uh, almost exactly two months ago from the plane fell out of the sky, that they all wanted to travel together on the same private jet. And of course, regardless of the fact that we don't know at this stage all the key details and Russian investigators have been seen visiting the scene uh, and apparently driving in uh, their technical cars back to the Tver Forensics Bureau, where we imagine identification of these bodies will uh, become a more gruesome scientific reality. There is still, of course, now immediately uh, in here in Ukraine and across Russia, fingers being pointed as to who may have been behind this. The predominant suspect, of course, the Kremlin head, Russian President Vladimir Putin, is the fact he said nothing about this at all since it happened. More indicative of that possibility or less? We don't know. But ultimately, the truth is something the Kremlin will manipulate here and present to the public in the way that they wish. And Putin was seen at a World War II memorial site just as this incident did occur, perhaps burnishing uh, his uh, credentials with war veterans. But uh, an important moment for Putin. He clearly, if indeed he is behind this, felt that Prigozhin was a greater threat alive, that his continued sort of impudent survival after that failed uh, armed rebellion two months ago was a greater threat to the Kremlin than the possible ramifications he may feel from Wagner and Prigozhin loyalists in the days and weeks ahead. Now they've seen their figurehead, it appears, uh, killed or dead, at least, in this horrific fashion. Uh, the European Union and the French government still suggesting it's hard to draw immediate conclusions from the little evidence, indeed, that we do have. But none of this stops the narrative gaining pace amongst the Kremlin's critics against those in Ukraine here who believe simply this is Putin cleaning house, albeit in a late fashion after that armed rebellion. Remember, the Wagner mercenaries uh, marched to Moscow, essentially saying they wanted to replace place the Russian top brass for their appalling conduct and uh, running of the war, but eventually finding that move snowballed into a broader confrontation with Putin, the biggest Putin's had in his 23 years in power. And Prigozhin, many observers of the Kremlin felt, miraculously appeared to survive in public, even meeting with Putin, Putin claimed, or uh, his spokesperson claimed, after that failed armed rebellion. So this untimely demise, whatever the full details that we don't know yet, wrapping up potentially that question as to how one of these key Putin critics, the only man really to confront Putin in this way in his over two decades in power, remained at liberty. Clearly, that has now changed. Julia? Yes, the bigger mystery here, perhaps, that he remained at large for so long after this. Um, Nick, I just want to get your uh, your comments and, and what you know about the situation in Ukraine at this moment. I think the officials are keen to point out that the war does go on and some form of progress is being made, including um, operations against Russian military facilities in Crimea, Russian-occupied Crimea, of course. Can you tell us any more about that? Yeah, Minimal details available, but some startling video released by the Ukrainian military showing what appears to have been an amphibious landing on a part of the Crimean Peninsula itself. This coincides with Ukraine's Independence Day, perhaps a degree of uh, military flag waving almost to suggest that their special forces are able to reach a peninsula that's quite dear, frankly, to Vladimir Putin's heart and was annexed by Russia uh, illegally in 2014. Uh, but it's an interesting turn in this story here where the death of Prigozhin has significantly overshadowed the events on the Ukrainian battlefield. Here's a little more of what we know about Yevgeny Prigozhin. He had always lived in the shadows until the war in Ukraine made him perhaps the most public Russian critic of how the Kremlin's war was fought. 
The possibility Yevgeny Prigozhin is dead is a shockwave to an already shaken system. Putin's critics rarely survive as long as he did. And the talk in Russia and Ukraine that Putin might still have wanted to kill him, a sign the chaos in Moscow he caused was not over. He led the most brazen affront to Putin's rule in his 23 years at the helm, taking an armed rebellion into the southern stronghold of Rostov-on-Don, marching on Moscow and then abruptly turning around. The apparent reason? A deal brokered by Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko. Putin saved here by a neighbouring ruler he usually treated with contempt. The deal was opaque, perhaps involving the fighters of the group Prigozhin-led, Wagner, moving to Belarus. It's unclear how much that happened, and then Prigozhin appeared, already surviving a long time for a Putin challenger, popping up in Africa this week, saying he would expand Russia's influence there. It would have been another turn in his remarkable and sordid career. Initially Putin's chef, he became a military contractor supplying food, then expanded into influence operations in the United States, trying to meddle in key elections. All deniable, all damaging to Putin's enemies. His Wagner group expanded too from 2014. CNN has tracked their mercenaries operating in the Central African Republic, Sudan, Libya, Mozambique, Mali and Syria, as well as Ukraine, with an army of tens of thousands battle-hardened and, in Ukraine, always savage, fighting hardest around Bakhmut and always expanding, recruiting convicts from Russian prisons to be used as apparent cannon fodder on the front lines, executing alleged traitors apparently with a sledgehammer. It may never be definitively known who died in this wreckage. Even transparent investigators would struggle to find the right DNA. Instead, we will have Russian state investigators and media's word. The very people whose boss Prigozhin enraged. Now, we will, of course, always have probably enduring questions about this. We have yet even to hear from the Wagner group itself on their official channels that they believe uh, Prigozhin is dead. And remember, too, it's not just Prigozhin, it's uh, one of the key founding members, Dmitry Utkin, and many other individuals, some of them sanctioned by the United States, who were reported to have been on that plane too. A startling moment, frankly, for the demise of this Russian paramilitary organization and a startling turn too uh, for those around Vladimir Putin, showing, if indeed it is the case, that the Kremlin was behind this, that you simply don't survive crossing Putin. Yes, Julia? some might call it a clean sweep. Thank you. Nick Payton Walsh there in Zaporizhia, Ukraine. Now, Moscow court is refusing to free Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich. The court extended his detention for another three months on Thursday while he awaits trial on espionage charges. Gershkovich was arrested in March and is the first American journalist to be held by Russia on spying charges since the Soviet era. Now, also today, a big win for Russia and China in the closing hours of the BRICS summit in South Africa. The five-member nation bloc agreeing to more than double its membership. Beijing and Moscow had been key proponents of enlarging the group. Saudi Arabia, Iran, Ethiopia, the UAE and Argentina could soon be in the club. But will the BRIC expansion click with all members? David McKenzie is live for us in Johannesburg, where the BRICS summit took place. We've added too many vowels here and not enough consonants. I don't know what we're going to call them after this. Um, it certainly um, adds financial firepower, I think, and some more for diversity to this group. But you called them odd bedfellows, the BRICS, earlier this week. And I think that emphasises this term with this collection. What can be achieved in practice? 
I think that's a very good question. And yes, if you look at Iran and Saudi Arabia potentially being in the same grouping uh, starting in January, that is certainly politically very odd bedfellows. They would barely speak to each other until China brought them together in recent months. So, yes, uh, the key will be, uh, Julia, whether these countries can actually cooperate in a way that has meaningful political clout on the world stage. On paper, it certainly is a powerful collection of so-called global South nations uh, from all over the world. Interestingly, no additions in uh, South or East Asia, and I'm sure China and India had something to do with that. There has been a lot of talk during these past few days about de-dollarization, and that was obliquely brought up again in the final statement. You know, financial experts say that is a long shot, at the very least, to try and move the international monetary system away from uh, dollar-based uh, transactions. Uh, but I think thematically it is important that these countries are pushing it. And it certainly is, as you alluded to, a big win for Russia, which has been frozen out of banking systems because of its uh, invasion of Ukraine. The UN Secretary General was in attendance today, and it was interesting that he used this expansion of BRICS and the criticism of multilateral organizations uh, to warn that they needed to reform or die, basically. For multilateral institutions to remain truly universal, they must reform to reflect today's power and economic realities and not the power and economic realities of the post-Second World War. In the absence of such reform, fragmentation is inevitable. With those major oil-producing countries joining, uh, you could see a cash flowing in more directly and with greater volume into the BRICS Bank, the new development bank. I guess in that sense, you could have a practical way to compete with the World Bank and the IMF uh, in the future. But I think that's a bit down the line. I think what is significant here is that they made this expansion and they announced it at this meeting. It wasn't a more thought out, at least public process beyond this meeting. They have been discussing this for some time, but certainly this will be seen as a win for China and Russia and some of the other countries uh, perhaps dragged over the line. We'll have to see how uh, it actually pans out. Julia? Yes, but your point about adding big energy players is, uh, I think, a very important one. If there's some way that they can pay for um, energy flows within this group and an alternative currency to the US dollar, um, that could be pretty potent if. David McKenzie in Johannesburg there. Thank you. Now, former President Donald Trump is set to surrender himself to Fulton County authorities in Georgia today. That's where he and his 18 co-defendants face charges related to efforts to overturn the 2020 U.S. election. This is the fourth criminal indictment of the former president this year alone. Nick Valencia joins us from outside the Fulton County Jail. Nick, what are we expecting to see from the president today? Well, Julia, the former president finds himself in legal peril, having been indicted four times in the last five months. But it's in this indictment for the first time that he'll have to surrender to be arrested as well as pay bond. When he walks through those doors in the Fulton County Jail later this evening, he'll be doing so for the first time as a criminal defendant in this sprawling investigation. Julia? 
great to uh sorry nick uh okay so you've sort of laid out the challenges that uh, donald trump faces and this is just uh, the fourth in a row as we're expecting you also had the chance to see others coming in and out of the court, particularly yesterday, including the former New York mayor in particular. And you asked him a particularly potent question, I think, in terms of financing and how he actually managed to get to the court yesterday. Just talk us through some of the conversations that you were having with other co-defendants in this case. That's right. There's been a flurry of activity here outside the Fulton County Jail. We've seen multiple defendants. So far, a total of nine of the former president's co-defendants have turned himself in. And it was yesterday, perhaps the most notable name other than the former president on those co-defendants list was Rudy Giuliani, the former mayor of New York, a man who at one time was said to be America's mayor, but now finds himself on the other side of the justice system. And it's really interesting, Julia, because we had been told up until this point that he was seeking help, trying to get people to pay for his legal fees. And then yet he showed up here in Atlanta on a private jet. And when we uh, talked to him as he was released after his arrest, we asked him that. Who paid for his private jet? He did not answer that. And he went on to play the victim, saying that he's being essentially indicted for trying to help the former president as a lawyer. He called himself the uh, you know one of the best prosecutors in American history, and he challenged those to find a prosecutor with a better record in the last 100 years. Uh, he went on to parrot what the Donald Trump, the former president, has said about this investigation, calling it political in nature. Uh, and then he left. We asked him uh, several questions that he did not answer. One, what was it like to be on the other side uh, of the justice system? And also, you know, if he's had any communication with the former president and if he still believes this election was rigged. Those questions he did not answer. Uh, and he kept it, you know, he got back in his car and then the next thing we know, he showed up at a bail bondsman. Uh, so we expect more defendants to turn themselves in later today. The biggest, of course, the biggest name being Donald Trump. Uh, but uh, it was on Wednesday that a U.S. district judge ruled that his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, as well as a ex-DOJ official, Jeffrey Clark, who were, Jeffrey Clark, who were trying to move their state proceedings to federal court. Uh, they had their uh, delay, their motion to try to delay their surrender denied by a judge. So they're going to have to turn themselves in. And the clock is running on this. They'll have uh, less than 24 hours. By noon tomorrow is when they have to turn themselves in and they have to still work out those bond agreements. So we are still waiting for more activity here outside the Fulton County Jail. You Julia? certainly are. The crescendo later today, of course, with the former president. Nick Valencia, thank you so much for that. Okay, straight ahead. A challenger to President Putin's monopoly on power. Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin is presumed dead. The question is, is Putin stronger or weaker for it? Prominent Russian-American writer and Putin critic Masha Gessen weighs in. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
Welcome back to First Move and returning to our top story today in the fate of Wagner Group leader Evgeny Prigozhin. Russian aviation officials say he was traveling on a plane that crashed near Moscow on Wednesday. State media reports 10 people were on board the flight and that so far eight bodies have been found. This comes after General Sergei Sorovikin was dismissed as head of Russia's aerospace forces. He hasn't been seen in public since Prigozhin's short-lived rebellion, fueling unconfirmed rumors of his detention. Our next guest is a writer for The New Yorker, an outspoken Putin critic and the author of Surviving Autocracy. Masha Gessen joins us now. Masha, great to have you on the show. I think few people would buy that this was an accident, even if we never end up knowing the truth. Two months to the day since the coup took place, Prigozhin and his top lieutenants on this plane, uh, a Russian general dismissed on the same day. There's a lot of coincidences there. Assuming that Prigozhin really was on that plane, which which I would assume, um, but a lot of people, of course, are second guessing this, wondering if uh, if this is a ploy to have him safely disappear. But yes, this reads like um, like Putin's response to the coup, and there's um, there's a lot of Putin in this response, right? There is the murder by aircraft, which is an old. Uh, Soviet and post-Soviet tradition. It's not quite as common as murder by poison, but it's been known to happen before. Um, And it's the two-month break between the actual coup and what appears to be a reaction to it. And this is very much in Putin's bureaucratic style. He takes a pause. He creates the appearance of having considered this and maybe even followed some kind of procedure, if there is indeed a procedure for having people killed. And then on the same day, he removes the general who, as you mentioned, hasn't actually been in public in two months, uh, who is largely blamed, I think, in the Kremlin for allowing this conflict between the military of defense and Prigozhin to fester, and more important, for allowing Prigozhin's troops to move uh, unhampered through Russia on their way to Moscow during the failed mutiny two months ago. And of course, Prigozhin and his top commander uh, of Wagner, uh, Dmitry Utkin, uh, whose nickname is Wagner, they're both presumed dead. You know, it's interesting. In an interview earlier this year, uh, Vladimir Putin was um, asked about uh, forgiveness. And he said leaders must be able to forgive, but that not everything can be forgiven. And the interviewer said, what can't be forgiven? And he said, betrayal. From what we know of Prigozhin and Putin, they're sort of similar in that way, both ruthless. Um, The idea that someone was disloyal would be met with this kind of response, potentially. I think for most people, the greater surprise was that Prigozhin continued to be at large after this. And it goes to your point about timing. Do you think Prigozhin was complacent that he trusted Putin uh, not to remove him in the way that we have seen in the past, or at least allegedly seen in the past, um, other competitors taken out of the picture? You know, we humans have a boundless capacity to deceive ourselves. Uh, I have no inside track on this, but I imagine that it was easy for Prigozhin to think that, yes, there was an exemption made for him. But even though Putin called him a traitor on Russian television, he went on television while Prigozhin's troops were marching to Moscow. Putin went on television and called Prigozhin a traitor. From that point on, Prigozhin was a dead man. 
But I think Prigozhin knew in his heart that he wasn't a traitor. He was just trying to get Putin's ear. His coup was basically accidental. He thought that the military operation, as they call it, was not going well. He thought that Putin was making bad decisions. He thought that Putin's generals were making bad decisions. He wanted to get to Moscow to have a sit down with Putin about the war. This was the origin of his coup. And I think he probably believed that, uh, as again, we humans tend to believe that everybody sees the world exactly the way we see the world. Finally, the fact that he was uh, ostensibly banished to Belarus, but clearly had total freedom of movement mm. within Russia and between Russia and Belarus, probably suggested to Prigozhin that he was safe. He also had, to your point, numerous allies uh, in the Russian military and among Putin's aides, I think, who opposed the war or were concerned about the way that the war's headed. Do these officials now speak out or do you think what we've seen here, whoever was behind it, quells some of the dissension? I guess the question that I'm asking in a more pointed manner is, is Putin safer or more vulnerable as a result of what's taken place in the last 24 hours? I think Putin is safer. I think the message that he has sent out um, is, look, uh, any attempt to go up against me, even if it is framed as an attempt to just get my ear, is punishable by death. Uh, if Prigozhin's mutiny opened up the possibility of a coup in Russia, if it communicated to people that something like this was actually possible, that Russians might have some semblance of a choice, although, you know, uh, God forbid you have to choose between someone like Putin and someone like Prigozhin. And, you know, I should note here that no, Prigozhin was not opposed to the war, nor are his allies opposed to the war. Prigozhin thought that the war was not being prosecuted decisively enough. He thought that if he'd had the reins, he would have been able to take over Ukraine in a few days. So he just thought that Putin's generals were incompetent. Um, but anyway, I think the message that it sends is if you thought that something like this was possible, that dissent was possible, that criticism was possible, that, God forbid, armed uprising was possible, this is how it ends. It ends with death, and it ends with death, scarily enough, when you least expect it. I just wonder, in terms of the vulnerability for President Putin, whether this further restricts the information passage up to him, particularly bad news, whether it's the war or anything else, you're going to be that much more reluctant to have bad news That's a great for question. President Putin. But, yeah, that's a great question. But I think, you know, it, it's actually pretty hard to imagine restricting the flow of information further than it's already restricted. Mm. Putin, for years, has been hear hearing only what he wants to hear, only from a very small group of people um, who have access to him and who never want to bring him bad news. So I don't see how this can make a significant difference. He is as isolated as dictators get, and he has been for years. Mm. And he's presumed to have one less of those people today. Uh, Masha, great to chat to you. Thank you. Masha Gessen there. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks up and running this Thursday and a mostly higher open on this Jackson Hole Eve on Wall Street. Global investors eagerly awaiting key speeches from Jerome Powell and European Central Bank head 
Christine Lagarde. That's at the Fed's annual symposium in the United States state of Wyoming on Friday. Will they signal a pause in rate hikes going forward as inflation eases? Some anticipating a what's known as hawkish pause, which would continue to keep investors on their toes, a.k.a. we stand ready to do what it takes if things spark higher again. In the meantime, shares of artificial intelligence chipmaker NVIDIA, a key reason for today's Nasdaq advance, its shares rallying after strong second quarter results. Sales rising more than 170%. NVIDIA also saying it sees no demand slowdown in sight. Claire Duffy joins us now. Claire, I'm stealing the headlines from you. The net income line actually for me was the most eye-watering part up 422% on the same time last year. And don't even get me started on the margins. Wowzers. Yeah, it is really stunning, Julia. This just absolutely blew analysts' expectations out of the water and really blew NVIDIA's own expectations out of the water. The company talked about the fact that this AI boom is really causing the company to grow even faster than it even could, you know, it could have predicted. This is a company that makes these microchips that are purpose-built for artificial intelligence, and in particular, the generative AI that fuels tools like ChatGPT, which are really only in their early stages of taking off. I thought it was interesting. The company also noted that the world has a trillion dollars worth of data centers that are all in the process of transitioning to artificial intelligence workloads, and NVIDIA is really going to be the beneficiary of a lot of that transition. This is a company that really doesn't have competitors that are able to keep up with what its technology can do at this point. The CEO said the race to adopt generative AI is on and NVIDIA really is going to take a lot of that business. The company is expecting revenue for the current quarter to, again, more than double year over year. And so I think for NVIDIA at this point, the question is really, can it continue to meet these now much higher expectations? Its valuation has grown so much. And can it continue to meet all of this demand? The company talked a bit about the fact that it's investing and ramping up production, ramping up capacity. And that's something that it's going to have to continue to invest in because, again, we're really only still in the early stages, despite the fact that these results are so stunning. We're really only in the early stages of this AI boom. Yeah, it's such a great point. Everyone else is ramping up spending an investment on this. These are basically the only ones really, aside from a few others that are managing to monetize on real scale. What's your sense of whether they can continue to meet this? Because certainly what I got from these results was that they were saying, look, this is this is about a supply issue and we're going to try and meet it versus any kind of demand problem at this stage. No worries. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the company is talking about the fact that they're ramping up production. They're working with their production partners to make sure that they can meet all of this demand. I think certainly, you know, you can imagine there may be some bumps in the road over the next couple of months. But again, this is still early stages for them and their ability to take advantage of this huge transition. They referred to it, to it as their iPhone moment. You know, this really this really transformational technology wave that's taking off. And so I think, you know, this is there's huge potential for this company going forward. And, you know, you're talking about some of these economic jitters that a lot of companies are having right now. I think this is one space where they don't have to worry about that so much. Companies are making this transition to AI, whether they like it or not right now. And NVIDIA is really going to be able to take advantage of a lot of that. Yeah. What does it mean for our business? A lot of questions being asked. Um, NVIDIA monopolizing on that, certainly. Claire Duffy, thank you. The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. 
Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to First Move. For the second year running, Ukraine celebrating its Independence Day in the shadow of war. President Volodymyr Zelensky marked the occasion, calling it, quote, a holiday of strong people, a holiday of people with dignity. And in the face of conflict, resilience, businesses are still open. Many of them are supporting Ukrainians, too, on the front lines. A restaurant in Kyiv called Zigzag, just one of them. They mark the day with a post on Instagram saying, in part, our independence is a symbol of freedom and struggle for key human values and rights. And joining us now is Lubov Sobolska. You may remember her from the last time we spoke. She is the owner of ZigZag. She's also the founder of the Center for Strategic Communication and Information Security of Ukraine, also known as the Stratcom Center. Lubov, welcome once again to the show. Just explain what this day means in particular. Thank you for much, so much for having me. I think that with each passing year, this day uh, has more and more significance for us because we understand how high the price for our independence is. Because every day and probably every hour, uh, someone gives um, his or her life uh, for our independence. So today, there are many people in Kyiv and they are in a very festive mood despite the air raid siren that we had just an hour ago people wear national ukrainian clothes uh Vishavanka, as you can see on me and people uh, congratulate each other uh, and people say that it's a very very special day uh, and now we understand how unique and special it is even more yeah it's brought new meaning to it i mean i we've emphasized the independence that you've shown in challenging times with your various jobs and your roles. But it's also personal for you because you chose to stay in Kyiv, but you sent your children away. And we're not going to discuss where they are, obviously, for, for safety reasons. But just describe what that's like and how often you see them. I see them once in a while once in a month or once and a half and um, obviously it's very difficult and there is no one single family in Ukraine uh, that was not affected by the war. Um, everyone uh, lost someone, someone who were killed or injured or m missed or separated. So I, I see this as the necessity. I understand that I have to be here, I have to fight for my country and I have to do everything possible to uh, be able to bring my kids back. So that's why we all have to sacrifice something. And so far, um, my sacrifice is um, having uh, my kids away and seeing them not very often. Yeah, but you've also lost, I believe, friends and former colleagues of the restaurant too. Yes, and uh, among my team at ZigZag, some people were conscripted to the armed forces, uh, some people left the country, especially female uh, members. But yes, uh, I have some friends who were killed. Uh, one of them is Ukrainian famous uh, writer, Victoria Melina. 
she was killed, she was a civilian, she went to Kramatorsk and she was sitting in the pizza place, pizza restaurant, when Russia uh, hit it with missile and she was killed there. Um, this is something that all Ukrainians have to bear now. Uh, but uh, we understand that we have to survive and not survive just uh, physically, not withstand just physically, but also culturally, also economically. That's why we stay here and, and work and fight. Stoic in the face of loss. Talk to me about the support that you also provide from the revenues from ZigZag to the military in, in particular, because I know you're helping them finance drone purchases. Yes, when, when the war started, big war, as we say, because the war started back in 2014, but when the big war started, we uh, began to volunteer and to prepare meals for our armed forces, for our territorial forces, for, for our doctors and elderly people in the city. Uh, so we were preparing uh, 700 portions of meals uh, per day. And now we donate, but everybody is donating in Ukraine right now. We donate and uh, we collect money uh, for drones. Uh, our armed forces need drones on the ground. So this is very important for it. It's it's a very strong movement in Ukraine right now to donate and collect uh, for, for uh, drones. I mean, I know you're not the only business, clearly, that's doing that. Is that support sort of stronger than ever that hasn't wavered over the past year and a half? Because it's challenging to keep up the final support, the financial support and, and run a business. It is not easy, to be honest, mm. to run business in Ukraine right now because many people left and also because Russia uh, carries out missiles attacks uh, basically every day. So it's not very safe. Uh, but of course, Kiev is a much more safer place than other cities because we have American, by the way, uh, air defense systems, uh, patriot systems. So we feel much more protected right now. Uh, but um, generally, I would say that it's the, the, the support for the armed forces is very stable, is very strong. We don't have other choice. We don't have other way except uh, we're standing and winning this war. So, and today, when people raise the glass of uh, a glass of uh, sparkling wine or something, they always say, say to victory. Yes, to, to life beyond this. Um, can I ask you about what happened in the past 24 hours? I'm, I'm utilizing your sort of NGO um, Stratcom Center now and understanding information and misinformation with the presumed death of, of Jenny Progozin, the, the Wagner chief, and just how you see Russia and Vladimir Putin himself utilizing this. I think that it's something that Prigozhin uh, should have had in mind when he was withdrawing forces from Moscow, uh, because Putin never forgives. Uh, he always uh, kills his opponents. Uh, he always kills those who go against him. Uh, but I see that in Ukraine, for instance, this news uh, didn't take a lot of coverage. Um, it means that Prigozhin is not a figure that that is important for for us but in russia we notice that many people feel sorry for him many people liked precaution unlike by the way navalny who's the leader of a liberal movement 
Prigozhin had a lot of sympathizers, and now they say that um, it was not right to uh, get rid of him in this way. Do you think that makes a difference? Do you think the sympathy that Prigozhin had in, in Russia makes any kind of sort of difference to how they view Vladimir Putin? I don't really think so, unless Russians feel uh, on themselves this war, they, they don't change their opinion on, on Vladimir Putin. But yeah, we see that majority of Russians, unfortunately, they support this war. They really like their leader. They really like uh, the dictator they have in their country. Uh, but it also proves that if they like Prigozhin, it means that this uh, type of leader, this strong, as they say, and uh, cruel at some point um, figure, this is somebody that, that, that who, who Russians really like. And they want to have someone like this. Mm. And there's a message in that, Lubov. Thank you so much for joining us today and um, our thoughts with you on Independence Day and uh, your Thank friends you. and family, of course, too. The owner of so Restaurant Zigzag. Thank you. Okay, after the break, desperate efforts to tame wildfires in Greece as high winds fan the flames. We'll take you there next. Welcome back to First Move. Beijing is banning all seafood imports from neighboring Japan heightening tensions after Tokyo's controversial decision to begin releasing treated wastewater from the Fukushima nuclear plant. Mark Stewart has the details. The release of the treated wastewater is now underway. This will be a lengthy process that could take years to complete, a move that's prompted controversy. CNN visited the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant in April. We saw the tanks that collectively have been holding enough water to fill 500 Olympic-sized swimming pools. At the center of the controversy, a radioactive isotope called tritium. For now, there is no technology to remove it, and space is running out in massive storage tanks. But authorities stress the water from Fukushima will be highly diluted and released slowly over decades meaning the concentration of tritium being released will be very low and meets international regulations. Still, many nations are expressing reservations, including China. It is unjustified, unreasonable, and unnecessary for Japan to push through the ocean discharge plan. We urge Japan not to shift the risk of nuclear pollution onto the rest of humanity in pursuit of its selfish interest. The skepticism is also being felt here in Tokyo, where some protesters are concerned about the impacts of the move, including the effects on the fishing industry. The discharge won't be without supervision. The local power company has pledged to monitor the discharge for decades to come. Mark Stewart, CNN, Tokyo. And strong winds have caused a resurgence in wildfires north of Athens. The Greek fire department says the winds picked up early Thursday morning and that residents were asked to leave the area. Eleni Jokos joins us now from Athens. Eleni, and I can already see scenes of fire devastation around you. Yeah. 
devastation, dystopia, heartbreak, seeing what is supposed to be the lungs of Athens turning to charcoal. I'm actually watching a helicopter above and I'm monitoring to see where they're dropping water. Um, the fire department still tells us that the fire is active here in Parnitha. We're not allowed to move closer to the fire because it's actually so deep in the mountain. Um, it seems stable from where we are, but we're told do not be fooled. Um, the fire is still ongoing. You can see I don't, you know, we don't, we're not experiencing a lot of wind. We had bad winds yesterday. Julia was setting up for a live shot uh, yesterday morning and then suddenly a huge fire erupted behind me. It shows how rapidly, how quickly fires can spread with the assistance of wind. Um, I, I spoke to a governor of civil defense a little earlier who explained what it was like for firefighters last night. Take a listen. It was a very difficult night for firefighters. After 1.30 a.m., the fire gained momentum, spreading fast. Until about 6 in the morning, it was very difficult. Once we were able to resume aerial assistance, in the morning, the situation improved. So, Julia, um, you can see where it's green behind me. This mountain is supposed to be filled with lush, beautiful uh, trees. And as you can see, it's been destroyed. This isn't the only active fire in Greece right now. We're in Parnitha. There's um, another area of Lona just 40 kilometers from here. That is because of arson. That happened this morning in Alexandropoli, uh, where we saw really devastating images of those 18 bodies that were found. That area has been burning for over three days. That is still on the go. Viotia, which is 100 kilometers from Athens, active fires as well. Um, this has been a record season of fire, fire, uh, fire wildfires across Greece. Um, and you can see that the resources are, are absolutely not enough to contend with the intensity on the ground. I'm sorry, the, the, the smoke inhalation over the past day or so, Julia, has been very difficult. It, it's filled with smog. It's filled with particles. It is polluting the air. Um, this is supposed to be a carbon base and a protection uh, for the city of Athens. Uh, it, it is absolutely difficult to experience. We've also had burning of homes that we witnessed yesterday, locals having to flee their livelihoods. Uh, generally a very, a very difficult couple of days. Yeah. The climate crisis and civil protection minister, I saw him say that yeah. firefighting teams were making superhuman efforts to try and contain this. Um, yeah. We wish them well. Stay safe, Eleni, there. Thank you so much for that, Eleni Jokos in Athens. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they'll be on my X and Instagram pages. You can search for at Chatley CNN. Connect the World is up next. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.